And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, June 20th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, defense and state aren't the only departments with a big China challenge. Plus, a progress report on a sitting congressman who also went back to college. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Homeland Security Department is hell-bent on customer experience. In fact, it's establishing a customer experience directorate this month. This comes after the department met a goal to reduce the amount of time the public spends accessing its services by 20 million hours over the past year. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with DHS Chief Information Officer Eric Heisen. A year ago, we, in line with President Biden's executive order on customer experience, set a pretty aggressive target of eliminating 20 million of the 190 million hours of administrative burden that we place on the public every year um, measured by the Paperwork Reduction Act. And so we broke that target down by our uh, agencies and offices in accordance to the amount of paperwork and forms that they put out and worked to put out a series of guides and best practices on how uh, our agencies could work to meet that goal, whether that was moving forms online or to mobile devices, reusing information we already have, simplifying the amount of information that we collect. And I I was thrilled with the results. We exceeded our goal of 20 million hours by May 30th, which the number is impressive, but what matters much more to me is the impact that that has on people that are going through our services, that this is time that is back in the hands of disaster survivors, of travelers. One of our significant examples is streamlining the credentialing process for transportation workers. So that's people that are working to keep our transportation system safe spending less time filling out paperwork for credentials with us, more time actually on the job. The work has been been great so far. And what, what's impressed me is how the community across the department viewed this as an, an opportunity not to hit some arbitrary target coming down from headquarters, but to embrace the, the intent. The Paperwork Reduction Act is a decades-old law, and our employees, both in the IT, legal, uh, regulatory, and other communities across DHS that implement it, all are doing so for the right reasons, and they found this is an incredible opportunity to, to really meet the intent of why they do these jobs, why this law exists, and do right by the people that we serve. So I've been thrilled with the results so far. Our goal is that this becomes an ongoing part of our work across the department and that we, in addition to the target, set out a series of practices that we expect all parts of DHS to hit as they are um, developing new forms and applications. And so we are going to continue to build on this progress uh, so that uh, this becomes an enduring part of our department's way of doing business. Yeah, and in in some ways, it just seems like little simple things adding up to this 20 million hours when you talk about pre-populating forms, streamlining certain, certain types of paperwork, digitizing certain types of paperwork. How heavy of a lift was this to get this across the line on the back end? Did it take a lot of investments or was it just a simple way of getting people to maybe think a little bit differently or just doing some simple changes on the, on the back end of some of these systems? This really was a tremendous lift by both our teams across the department, but also by our interagency partners. And critically, 
all of this feeds into the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs or OIRA in OMB. And uh, they were just outstanding partners to us in that they run the review process for every one of these changes that we submit. And so we massively increased their workload in a way that they could have been pretty unhappy with us about. And instead, they came to the table in a real true spirit of partnership to do right by the people that we serve. They embraced the extra work on their end. Our teams embraced the effort here. So while it, it can be a lot of little things that add up, it also adds up as many things in government do to uh, just a lot of effort to actually do uh, and appropriately handle what should be pretty basic work. Got it. And so what's next? Is there a new goal for next year? Are there specific projects that you're looking at going forward to build off of this? Yeah, so we are still looking at whether we're going to set an ongoing target, and I would love to see that total number of burden hours continue to drop year over year, but we're still figuring out exactly what that will look like. And also, uh, we're focused on making a lot of these practices durable long term. And then this gave us one really clear measure of uh, what we're doing to improve customer experience. But we know that there are also a lot of things that aren't quite measured quite so easily, right? So the experience that you have going through a TSA checkpoint, whether you feel respected, calm, understanding of what's happening and why at each stage, um, how you feel when you're going through complex application processes for things like disaster assistance or immigration benefits. So we're continuing to identify what our key services that we're focused on improving are and working with our agencies and offices on plans that will not only continue to reduce burden, but improve the customer experience in other ways and also strengthen our national security mission. And yeah, I mean, it seems as if there's always kind of these long poles in the tent uh, for DHS when you look at USCIS uh, immigration forms or the TSA checkpoint experience or things like that. What's your role up at the CIO's office at headquarters in helping the components moving forward, addressing some of these CX issues that have been kind of there for for many years, and I'm I'm sure, and there have been efforts to address them, and there's been progress. But what what are, what are you looking at from headquarters and the the support role that you play? Absolutely, that that's always the question at DHS. It's what do you do at headquarters? What is best handled uh, at the agencies and offices? We are establishing uh, this month our permanent customer experience directorate, which will be under my office. We've got some great talent already there, and are uh, building that out. Pretty aggressively, we're pleased to have support from OMB to fully fund that office in the 2024 president's budget that is under consideration. And what we are doing as we're standing that up is uh, sort of charting a new model for what a department-level customer experience focus looks like. I look a lot at the Department of Veterans Affairs as a leader in customer experience over the last several years with what they've done building out a veterans experience office uh, and uh, what they've done under their CIO shop. Uh, but uh, critically, when you look at the VA versus DHS, they have a very different type of uh, customer base. They serve veterans, right? And it makes sense to have a large centralized customer experience shop, uh, which they've done a great job of building out. For us, we serve travelers, businesses, disaster survivors, immigrants, state and local law enforcement partners, so many other types of customers across DHS. 
So what we're going to have at a department level will inherently look a little different. What we're thinking about doing, and we're still working through these plans with our agencies, is focusing on building a culture and capacity for improving customer experience across DHS, ensuring that each of our agencies are setting aggressive targets for improving their customer experience and making sure that we are measuring that and reporting on it appropriately. And then also looking at those services that we offer at the department level that interact across multiple parts of the department and with other departments. And so on some of those things will play a larger role at the department level versus on something that is entirely within uh, the domain of, say, FEMA. So a great example there uh, is trusted traveler programs. This was something that our Homeland Security Advisory Council recommended to the secretary a few months ago that we look at how we can better integrate TSA PreCheck, uh, CBP Global Entry, and other programs. The TSA and CBP teams do, do great work there. But what we are finding is that we're able to jump in at a department level and help align each of their respective efforts towards the overall traveler journey and experience. And so we are playing a more active role in something like that, which touches multiple DHS agencies, than we are necessarily with FEMA as they are transforming the experience of an individual disaster survivor applying for assistance. They've really got the lead and will support them as they need versus something like Trust to Traveler, where we're playing a more active role, although still the ultimate work gets done in our, our agencies. Eric Heisen, Homeland Security Chief Information Officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. We'll have more of the interview in the next hour. Still to come, a progress report on a sitting congressman who also went back to college. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. When many members of Congress are unable to manage a Facebook account, Don Beyer of Virginia has been pursuing a master's degree in machine learning. He's been at it for more than a year, and he joins me now for a progress report. And this is now, what, a year and a half into this formal course of study for a degree, correct? Yeah, yeah I'm on my fifth course now, Tom, and it's been very fulfilling and lots of fun. I'm surrounded by young people. And the best part is I'm learning things I didn't know before. And are you doing this as a personal pursuit just because it's a very interesting topic and very current? Or could this help inform some of the legislative matters that are starting to drift in front of Congress in this whole area of machine learning and artificial intelligence? Yeah, Tom, this started as just a personal pursuit. You know, I've always loved doing puzzles and math problems and crossword puzzles. And I thought, well, this would be great actually try to pursue a formal degree in it. They told me I could do it for free because I was old and paid Virginia taxes. But I, I said, no, I'll, I want the tuition because I want credit for it. But then it turns out that uh, all of a sudden with the rise of generative AI, it's on everybody's topic list. And especially the question, okay, what are we going to do about it at the federal level? So I don't profess to be an AI policy expert, but I'm trying to become one. Now, there is some differentiation in the field between machine learning and artificial intelligence itself. And then within the field of AI, generative AI is just one branch of it. But are you covering all of these things as a piece? 
in fact, George Mason University, where I'm going, doesn't have a, a formal subset in AI. In fact, I went and said, I want to do AI, and they said, well, do machine learning. And it turns out that if you break AI down into sort of three general categories, pattern recognition, generative AI, where you're generating brand new things, and reinforcement training, you're just teaching machines to do something with lots of repetition. The part that was most fascinating for me personally was the pattern recognition. The notion that we have so much data. This, I don't think these are apocryphal numbers, Tom, but that we're generated more information, more data last year than in the first 2,000 years of the modern era. And we have 85 or 90% of the information from our satellites isn't even looked at because it's just too much for our human capacity. But to the extent that the machine learning tools with big computers can see patterns that enable us to you know, perhaps understand what caused schizophrenia or how to recognize pancreatic cancer earlier or how to make our government work better. Well, those are really exciting. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine almost every agency mission is enhanceable by this type of technology, if only to speed up learning and to speed up some of the decisions that government takes, the adjudications it must make from sometimes years or months down to very short times. Absolutely. The federal government spent about $800 billion with a B during the pandemic for unemployment insurance. And we had ways and means hearings that said at least $60 billion of it was stolen. It was, was fraudulently taken. And perhaps with much better AI systems, we could have cut that $60 billion to $6 billion or, or even less. Huge savings for the federal government, for the taxpayers in there. Now, are you attending in person? You're going to George Mason and sitting in classrooms? Or is it all online or, or a combination? It's been a mix. The, the first couple of courses were almost completely online, except for the tests. You actually have to go out there, sign into the math lab, show your ID, you know, give up your cell phone, just to make sure that it's you taking the test. And this last course, it was a mix. And then starting in September, I've got to somehow find a way to get out there twice a week during the day for the in-person classes, because that's where the computer lab. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that's tough, because you guys have pretty tough schedules. We're speaking with Congressman Don Beyer, who represents Virginia's 8th District, and I guess you had to take it in Virginia. You can't do it in Maryland or anything, that, you know, for that for that purpose. We have, we have an abundance of wonderful universities in metropolitan Washington, so I'm lucky. We do. And what what's your sense of the students that are typical student age, let's say, because I guess those of us that consider ourselves students of lifelong learning, you know, are always there, but let's say the mode age that is attending, what are they like? That's I mean, just, yeah, what, well, they're they're mostly you know, late late teens, early twenties. I'll be seventy three next week, so I'm three to four times older than the average. But I've been really impressed. Well, first of all, George Mason University is extraordinarily diverse. If you just wander around, and want to look for Northern Europeans, you're not going to see a lot. Um, and the kids also seem, I should say, kids, but the young adults seem very motivated. It's been fun. It, it, this last class I was taking on uh, discrete mathematics, the professor halfway through would break us into groups and say, okay, work on the problem sets. And the kids would come over and were wonderful at you know, helping me. Even sometimes if I didn't think I needed the help, I wanted to be respectful because they were eager to show all that they knew how to do. It makes me really optimistic about the next generation. Because, you know, yes, they're diverse and they have a lot of racial and gender backgrounds coming together, but they're studying a single thing together. And maybe that gives us hope that there is commonality, that we bring diversity to an endeavor of study. But then the study itself becomes the common language and people can solve problems with those different uh, dimensions that they bring to it, as opposed to remaining sorted out in all our little egg crates with our own yeah. group. And I also think with these guys who are, you know, uh, probably first, second, third generation Americans, um, they all see 
education as the path to the American dream. And specifically in this case, that since technology will likely dominate the 21st century, that they see becoming a master of technology will give them the best path to, to a great a great America. Getting back to the practical aspect of having a master's degree in machine learning, how could this apply to perhaps the processes of Congress, which there's been some modernization. There was a special select committee on that, which is now disbanded, but there's still an effort to try to modernize Congress itself. Do you see this applying there too, possibly? That would be wonderful. You know, Tom, the thing I've been working on for eight or nine years right now is moving to ranked choice voting in multi-member districts to get away from Congress being so polarized, where the most conservative Republican wins the primary and the most liberal Democrat wins the primary. Um, maybe you need ranked choice voting with multi-member districts. I do think that the larger picture is when I finally get the master's, then obviously it'd be fine if I'm not too old to think about a PhD. So I'm already thinking, well, that means you need a, a thesis, you need a project, some way to apply the machine learning to a real problem in real life. And I've been thinking all along that suicide prevention might be the top of the list, but I should put Congress functioning in there too, especially since as we speak right now, the House is in a state of suspended animation because of the revolt within the majority. So I'm not sure how AI gets out of that. Well, that's right. Yeah, no, it's pretty hard to see. You can't change the human psyche that much. But with respect to something like ranked voting, that can be complicated for people to understand how this ranking works, and therefore they would be suspicious that it's rigged in some way. And what you hear the AI experts and the ML experts talk about all the time is the need for explainable and accountable and transparent algorithms. And that would seem like a good area to specialize in. And in fact, of of all the concerns, that's the one that appeals to me most trying to to address that. Um, We're working right now on a piece of legislation, which our shorthand is called the show me your work legislation. Just as the math professor doesn't want to see the answer, wants to see how you got there. We want to be able to say, if you're recommending that Tom Temin just jump off that bridge, why? Explain to me how your logic works. Sure. Let's hope it's a low bridge because I have a terrible fear (laughs) of heights. And in the classes, what are the tools? I mean, does this require heavy computing to do this or is it mostly theoretical? I mean, do they still use blackboards and or I guess whiteboards nowadays with erasable? Uh, yeah, the, they've been using whiteboards in the classroom. Um, so he, he scribbles at his desk and it shows up on the big screen. But I've been really, really impressed with all the five courses I've taken, how much of it's been done online, you know, with the different companies that are out there doing it, Pearson and his iBooks and stuff we didn't have when I was in high school or college. I, I really like it. It means you can work on it anytime, night or day. You get instant feedback. There's a learning process in a lot of the software. When you keep getting the same kind of problems wrong, they come back to you again and again. It's a different world, and I think it really accelerates the learning because of it. And what have the other members, how have they reacted to this? Well, I had last Congress, uh, Jerry McNerney had a PhD in mathematics, and he was always trying to come help me with my homework, which was nice. Um, I think most of them just think it's uh, uh, maybe quirky. Although I've had a bunch of people say that it's inspired might be the wrong word, suggested, inspired that they might like you to go back and take some courses. Interesting. Um, Yeah, that that you're not shut off just because you're older. One of my friends is the Republican chair of the Intel Committee, uh, Michael Turner, who actually went back to Georgetown and got a PhD in international relations. He was ahead of me, but I was inspired by that. Interesting. And I guess my final question is, when do you do your homework? Um, I spent most of Saturday morning and Sunday morning um, on on the computer doing it. And uh, I I kidded. It's been a long time since I've climbed into bed and my wife not already be asleep. Wow. And what's your end point? How much longer does it go till you get that new new degree? Uh, I think I have, at this point, 11 more courses. Wow. I finished the summer one. Basically three and a half years. 
you know, if I get beaten a primary or general, I'll be able to finish in a year, but I'm trying not to make that happen. Right. <laughs> we need that seat. Congressman Don Beyer represents Virginia's 8th District. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom, very much. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, budget talks for 2024 are rocky, raising talk of a government you-know-what. But first, defense and state aren't the only departments with a big China challenge. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. The Defense Department has been dealing with Chinese planes and ships harassing U.S. planes and ships. The State Department has dealt with Chinese aggression on the diplomatic front. But China has also emerged as a central challenge for the Commerce Department, according to my next guest, by design. Wire China staff writer Katrina Northrup joins me now with more. Ms. Northrup, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. And what did you find about the Commerce Department that the Secretary Raimondo has really made China and commercial rivalry something that should matter more? Tell us, tell us what you found. Yeah, so in terms of China policy, which is what my piece centered on, the Commerce Department has played a much, much more active role in recent years. So the Commerce Department is seen as pretty sleepy traditionally. It's been far from the action. Uh, you know, it's usually run by an older business executive at the end of their career. Um, it's also a, a hodgepodge of responsibilities. So there are 13 bureaus with, you know, everything from patents to the weather sure. to the census. But starting in the Obama administration, that started to change. So the Commerce Department has something called the Bureau of Industry and Security underneath it. Um, and that enacts export controls on companies or individuals through what they call the entity list. And before the entity list was, you know, focused on proliferation of nuclear weapons, it was populated by companies from India and Pakistan, mostly small companies, tiny companies. But in the Obama administration, right before the 2016 election, they added a huge Chinese telecommunications giant called ZTE. Sure. And that was a huge moment for the Commerce Department because it showed that it could kind of take on this big company. And then in the Trump administration, that only vastly expanded. So it added Huawei, which was one of the biggest telecommunications firms in the world to the entity list. And that was a huge deal. They ended up tweaking a bunch of export controls and eventually showed that the Commerce Department could crush a multinational company. And now and ByteDance is part of that list, correct? No, ByteDance is not a part of the entity list. It hasn't been added to the entity list. Okay, um, I guess there's a, there's a procurement rule about ByteDance, but that's yes. not the same as adding it to the entity list. Yeah, it's different. The Trump administration put on a lot of companies, 250, which is way more than any other administration. And the um, practical effect of being listed on that entities list then is what? When you're on the entity list, if I'm a U.S. company and I want to do business with that Chinese company that's on the entity list, I need a very special license to do business. Essentially, it makes it very hard for U.S. businesses to do business, give them software, give them anything, give them tool, you know, tools or, or even like tiny, um, you know, parts. 
people call it a sanction, but it's really an export control. Yeah, so the Trump administration really used this list a lot. And when Raimundo came in, she continued to use it. <laughs> She's used it a lot. In addition to this list that I've just been talking about a lot, Raimundo also has done a lot of other things on China, particularly about chips. There is a large apparatus in the federal government, including the trade representative, that has to do with trade. I think even the State Department has elements of trade policy. And yeah. there's the trade representative and several others. DOD has an apparatus. It sounds like in the Obama administration, they discovered almost an unused muscle of trade power and decided to exercise that one just because it was convenient. And I guess you could, no pun intended, throwing red tape around red China. Is that your sense that they found something, a new tool that had just been lying there, not all that well utilized? Yeah, well, it hadn't been utilized on China. So I think you're right. I guess discover is the wrong word because it was there, but they realized that they could use it on Chinese companies. Now it's really the front line of defense. So, I mean, your listeners will remember when the spy balloon came over the U.S., that the Chinese spy balloon, the first line of defense was putting six companies on the entity list. So this is the type of kind of it's the the first step. <laughs> Got it. We're speaking with Katrina Northrup. She's a staff writer for Wire China. And you were about to talk about the way that the Raimondo's Commerce Department is using this power in the semiconductor realm. Yeah. So in the semiconductor realm, which is very different than export controls, it's all about promoting U.S. competitiveness in comparison to China. They have $52 billion to dole out on chips, and they are building up this huge team within the Commerce Department. They're giving money to companies like Intel or TSMC to build manufacturing bases here in the U.S. to make sure that the U.S. has access to semiconductors. And that's all within the Commerce Department. No one else has control. So it's a big task. It almost sounds as if, and I don't say this with judgment, right or wrong, but that they have discovered a great way to establish industrial policy, something yeah. which the United States has been ginger about, let's say, for the last 250 years. Yeah, I mean, this is the biggest industrial policy program in decades. China has really been the impetus behind that program. No one was more involved in making it happen than Secretary Raimundo. I mean, she was on Capitol Hill, lobbying people, speaking with semiconductor executives to make sure that the CHIPS Act, which gives her this power, was passed. And that's what, that was a huge win for her, but it was also a huge win for the Biden administration. And yeah, it's all, it's all about industrial policy, as you say. What about Raimundo motivates her, do you think? Is there something in her background or something that, aside from zealous toward the policy of the administration that appointed her. What makes her the Commerce Secretary to do all this? Yeah, that's a good question. She has next to no China experience. She was the governor of, of Rhode Island, tiny state, and she often talks about how her father was actually laid off when his job in Rhode Island was outsourced to China. But that's pretty much the extent to her experience dealing with China. But she's this up and coming kind of star in the Democratic Party. She, a lot of people told me that, uh, you know, this won't be her last job in Washington, D.C. And so having her there, really ambitious, you know, really smart. She's Harvard, Yale, Oxford educated, you know, she has everything on her resume. So I think that makes a real difference in terms of 
what the power uh, the power she has sure. um, in Washington. And we won't hold Harvard against her, but uh, good for her <laughs> for doing all those things. And what about the reaction from China? Have they been able to countermeasure this in any way? They're actually cracking down a lot on, on U.S. businesses in China right now, and that's a part of what Raimundo is having to deal with. Raimundo met with the commerce minister, the Chinese commerce minister, in D.C. in May. That was top of the agenda, according to her readout. You know, she's trying to figure out what the balance is between taking action against Chinese companies, but also making sure that the response on U.S. companies in China uh, does not kind of outweigh that and make it too risky. So that's a tough balance to strike. And just a quick question about Wire China, your publication. Who are those readers and what kinds of things do you also also cover. Yeah, we, we cover China's global impact on business, tech, and trade. Most of our audience is kind of China specialist people in, in policy and in academia and business. So most of our readers have a China focus. We're based in New York, actually, but we have people all over the world. And you've and spent significant time in China personally. Yeah, I was in China before the pandemic. Uh, had to leave at the very beginning of the pandemic, unfortunately, and hope to get back. But it's very very hard to get a journalist visa to go to China right now. There are very few American reporters on the ground in China. Uh, so it's a it's a tough time to be reporting, but also a very important time. But the reporters that are there, they don't throw in jail like in Russia. There have been reporters in China who have been to jail. There's a, you know, there are a few examples of that. And I think it's more the case that they are kicked out. So at the beginning of the pandemic, a huge group of American reporters were kicked out of China. That's a big problem for a Americans' understanding of China, because if you don't have reporters on the ground, how are you going to know what's going on? Katrina Northrup is staff writer for Wire China. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Great to be here. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, budget talks for 2024 are rocky, raising talk of a government you-know-what. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Republicans in Congress are arguing among themselves over the 2024 spending levels, let alone with the Democrats. Now the talk of a lapse in appropriations, a shutdown is already in the air. WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller joins us with the details. So it sounds like the Republicans, Mitchell, at least some of them, want to go below the levels authorized in the debt agreement from a couple weeks ago. Right. So much for that little honeymoon period after the debt ceiling agreement went, went through Congress and got the signature of the president. It's really going to be a rough summer for congressional appropriators. You look just on the Republican side, conservatives pressing to have all the subcommittees set spending at fiscal year 2022 levels, which is below the debt ceiling deal calling for caps at 2023 levels. Now, House Republicans say that, and particularly those that are pushing for these deeper cuts, say there was no nothing in the agreement saying that they couldn't go lower than the caps, and that's exactly what they're doing. So they're really pressing down. Democrats on the other side say this is essentially a deal breaker because of what Republicans are doing. But then within the GOP, you have a disagreement among moderates and conservatives. The conservatives, people like Virginia Republican Bob Good, have said they don't care if there's a shutdown. They say it's more important to get a grip on spending and make significant cuts. And then you have moderate Republicans who are saying, wait a second, we do not want 
to be affiliated with another shutdown. We have seen the political damage that can do to the brand. So there's a real uh, squabble back and forth within the Republican Party. And the result might be that they could not even get to a continuing resolution at the deadline? Potentially. I mean, I think that that is always their escape valve. But the House Minority Leader, Hakeem Jeffries, he warned of a shutdown. I had asked if he was concerned about that earlier, about a week ago, and he kind of downplayed it. But this past week, he was very concerned about it. And then Senate Majority Leader Schumer has indicated that the deeper cuts are just a non-starter. And this week, the Senate Appropriations Committee is going to begin its work, but it's going to begin basically in a different universe than from where the conservative Republicans were. So if they can't even agree on some of these basic levels, they could be in trouble for getting a, a continuing resolution. Now, some of the appropriators have said they're going to be able to try to grind through this, but they are certainly off to a rough start. And what about the defense side of all of this? What's going on there? Well, that part is a big concern, especially among Republicans in the Senate, about whether or not there's going to be enough money for what they want to do in defense. And now there is some movement right there in the last week. The House Appropriations Bill was moving forward, and the in the House Appropriations Committee, they called for a 5.2 percent increase for all service members. But then there's really a significant bump in pay for entry-level and lower-level members of the military, uh, some as high as more than 30 percent. They really want to raise the rates for E1 through E6, uh, pay grades that have lagged for a long time. And uh, people say that this is hurting recruiting. They're not getting the type of people that they want to get into the military. They want to get more people into the military. But they have to set aside a lot of money, of course, to do this, about $800 million. And there again is a concern. If that money is not going to be there, uh, if they keep having these disagreements, it's going to cause real problems. Now, on that issue, the Republicans do seem to be fairly on the same page, that they want to get more money for defense. But of course, that squeezes a lot of other things on the domestic spending side. Right. And there's a little side drama going on with Senator Tuberville having to do with promotions for senior military personnel because they are funding service members making trips to get abortions. Right. And as you know, there are often Senate holds Uh, carried out by various senators, but usually they get let go after a relatively short amount of time and they figure out some kind of cooperative agreement on this. But this one, Senator Tuberville of Alabama has really dug in his heels on this. I was talking with Virginia Senator Tim Kaine about this, who's a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and he says Republicans and Democrats are frustrated about this because they've tried some various tactics and nothing has seemed to move Tuberville on this. Now, Kaine says the next step might be to try to get an a vote on an amendment related to Tuberville's proposal uh, in connection with the defense authorization bill. Uh, Kane hopes that will eventually take care of it. But in the meantime, you have more than 200 senior military personnel who are waiting on their promotions. Uh, in just a few weeks, actually, the Marine Corps commandant, there's supposed to be a changing of the guard there ceremony. And they've had to kind of fudge the language there because they don't really know whether a permanent uh, head of the Marine Corps is going to be able to take his place or if it's going to be kind of in this uh, middle uh, gray area. So a lot of things happening there. And then with the Joint Chiefs of Staff, there's some concern about people in that high military brass category that could have to be held up because of this. Yeah, sounds like Tuberville has them by the you-know-whats to see if their hearts and minds do follow. Indeed. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And there 
there is news it's dribbling out agency by agency, but now FEMA on where people work. FEMA, the latest one to basically set some guidelines coming up about getting people back in the office. What the FEMA administrator, Deanne Criswell, has told employees is that they're looking at a minimum of four days for each two-week pay period. And as you know, this is kind of a slow rolling out agency by agency. We had just several weeks ago the VA secretary announcing that employees will have to work a minimum of five days in the two-week periods. And this all, of course, comes out after the OPM sent out those guidelines, which some people said sent some mixed signals about what agencies can do. But again, on the congressional side, you're still getting a push from Republicans to get more people back into the office. And for those of us in the DMV that use all of our lovely airports, depending on where we're going, <laughs> I haven't flown from, say, Reagan to BWY yet. <laughs> that could be next. What is going on with the flights? I mean, I've never understood that whole thing in 50 years of flying. <laughs> right. It, it really, it's kind of confusing, but essentially, if you take the FAA reauthorization legislation, which is now before the Senate Commerce Committee, that is the vehicle, if you will, that many lawmakers will try to add slots or add flights in connection with Reagan National Airport. Now, right now, Delta Airlines wants to get more flights long haul flights out west and places like Texas. And of course, lawmakers from those areas are supporting that. However, here in the Washington area, because of the noise issues, because of the fact that Reagan National is already a very busy airport, in fact, has the busiest runway in the country, mainly because it's just that short runway by the Potomac. They, the members of the Virginia and the Maryland congressional delegation are saying they do not want this increase. They say it's going to actually add to delays at the airport airport because you're going to have more flights. Now, they were supposed to mark up the FAA reauthorization last week, but because this has caused such a kerfuffle, uh, they held off on that. So word is that they're working on some kind of various compromise amendments that may not lift the number of flights quite as high as some people would like, at least that support it, that it might just be a handful. But it's going to be interesting to see because uh, there's certainly a lot of political firepower here in the Washington area that is saying it does not want this kind of an increase. And in fact, the Metropolitan Airports Authority, which of course oversees Dulles and National, it is also opposed to this, especially when you consider all the improvements that have been made to Reagan National in recent years. And then the other argument that lawmakers, particularly from Virginia, make is you've put billions of dollars in the silver line to get people on Metro to get out to Dulles. Why would you try to increase things more at Reagan National when you've put this big investment going the other way uh, out west in Virginia? Well, taking the silver line to Dulles, you can read a novel on the way out there. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> and you'll have to buy another one at the airport <laughs> Right. You get there. And anything new on the FBI headquarters? Well, the Maryland congressional delegation got together with Governor Wes Moore, and uh, they reiterated last week that they are really pushing hard to get FBI headquarters in Prince George's County. Of course, on the flip side, you have the Virginia delegation. I've talked to uh, Senators Warner and Kane. They still feel confident that Virginia has the the lead, if you will, in trying to get this FBI headquarters relocated from D.C. into Northern Virginia. And part of the reason that this bubbled up recently is because an FBI document surfaced that indicated that the FBI essentially had a preference for being closer to its training facility at Quantico. Maryland cried foul and said, hey, you can't 
change uh, criteria in the middle of this. Virginia says, well, this is just an, another example of why the FBI headquarters should be in Virginia. All of this still being stretched out. This, as you know, has been going on for years, but we are supposedly going to get a decision at some point from the GSA later this year, and that will be huge, of course, for the region. Well, they might surprise us all by making it Grand Junction or something. <laughs> that would Who teach knows? them. All right. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. How ready are you and your agency for smart adoption of cloud computing? Not just email, but transformation of mission and critical support systems. Be sure to sign up for Federal News Network's Cloud Exchange. It starts today at 1 and runs through Thursday. Today's theme, law enforcement and national security. Hear from top federal cloud and technology experts like the Justice Department's Brian Merrick. Sign up now at federalnewsnetwork.com. 57 past the hour. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, June 20th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of the Federal Drive, defense and state aren't the only departments with a big China challenge, plus a progress report from a sitting congressman who also went back to college. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, we continue with more of our interview with the Homeland Security Department's Chief Information Officer, Eric Heisen, about the Customer Experience Directorate, just established by Homeland Security and led by former U.S. Digital Service official Dana Chisnell. Dana, who was an absolute steal for us to get at the department, as she is someone who I've had the pleasure of working with now for over a decade, was one of my fellow co-founding members of the U.S. Digital Service, and even before that, literally wrote the book on design in civic and public sector systems. So what we're finding as we bring on CX professionals through that hiring initiative and other efforts is that there is far more work to go around uh, than we can support right now. So Certainly looking at how we structure and specialize in different areas longer term, but right now we've got a great team of folks on board who have come from different parts of the private sector, uh, different parts of federal government, and are just bringing this incredible set of experiences with different types of customers and how their prior agencies have, have worked to serve them and helping us build out what this will look like at DHS. Everyone is 
pulling double or triple duty on different projects as any startup team always does. Uh, and we're excited to mature that uh, over time. And do you think that those folks will be, you know, a little bit like a digital service type thing where they'll go and work on a specific project that's high priority for a temporary amount of time? Or do you, do you have any initial thoughts there? Some of that, certainly. And obviously, we've got a lot of experience uh, with that from my prior role standing up the digital service team at DHS. But what I'm also really excited about, what Dana and I spend a lot of time talking about as well, is how do we build process and culture of CX department-wide? This was something that early in USDS, we didn't think about as much. We thought we're just the SWAT team. We're jumping in to focus on a couple of high-priority projects. And it took some time for us to realize we need to be focused on building out practice across the government in this work. How do we build out procurement, hiring, better IT governance, all of these things that uh, sort of came over time. So we're eager to start from that perspective with CX. So the team will be looking at how do we incorporate good CX into our IT governance policies and processes across the department when we are reviewing an IT program for an architecture review, how are we also looking at their UX at the same time? What do we need to be doing to build CX skill sets across our workforce? Can we offer up new training programs for CX professionals, but also for anyone who's touching our customer-facing efforts? great example there is some of what FEMA has done on what they, they'll call dog fooding, where everyone uh, needs to eat their own dog food. Administrator Criswell took their entire executive core and said, everyone needs to understand what it's like to apply for benefits from our agency. So try filling out the form or watch someone trying to apply. That's the type of practice that we want to institutionalize department-wide. So they'll have some of that project focus, but also be looking at some of those department-wide efforts that can better build a CX into the way we operate. Got it. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of approaching it. I mean, maybe the next step is undercover boss where you have the TSA administrator go through a checkpoint without uh, anyone realizing. Uh, well, there's the great, great story uh, from former Secretary Jay Johnson's days that he did exactly that at BWI. And he uh, actually worked the checkpoint for a day, I believe, and no one recognized him. And then he told a traveler at the end, oh, you think I'm your, your officer? I'm actually the Secretary of Homeland Security. And the traveler said, oh, well, uh, good for you young man. But cer certainly some of that is baked into uh, the history of the department and presents a lot of good opportunities. Wow. Yeah, that's a great story. All right. Um, you know, I, I wanted to just change the gears a little bit and follow up on something that was brought up during the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee yep. hearing earlier this month. The non-recurring expense fund, kind of a boring name, but seems like a pretty big deal for DHS yes. as a modernization fund. Can you tell us a little bit about how that might work or maybe it already is being worked? Absolutely. So the NEF, which we've, we've struggled to find a good acronym for, uh, no one really wants to be saying NEF all around, but was something we were really excited to get authority from Congress in the 2022 budget enactment that lets us take a portion of expiring funds every year and utilize them for IT modernization and to improve our facilities, which is another critical priority of Secretary Mayorkas. We have been asking since 2017, when Congress passed the Modernizing Government Technology Act, for authority to establish our own IT working capital fund as envisioned by that act, uh, in addition to utilizing the government-wide technology modernization fund. And so it took a little while, as things can, in the budget process, but we got that authority. 
with the NEF. And we are uh, really excited by it. It's, it's a small start, right? It takes time for funds to work their way through and ultimately expire and move into something like this. But the process that we're setting up uh, in partnership with our chief financial officer is to look at projects that we'll be sourcing from across the DHS IT community and ultimately reviewing through our DHS CIO council that do one of three things that tangibly address cybersecurity deficiencies in legacy systems that improve projects that improve the experience our employees have doing their jobs that make them more effective and improve the quality of their work life and also projects as we've been talking about all day today that improve the experience of uh, our customers and so Still early, uh, we are uh, about to solicit applications for the first tranche of projects on the IT side, but it's something that I am hopeful will be a very significant tool for us in our IT modernization journey for years to come. Got it. That's a great overview. I think you said in the hearing it's a 50-50 split between IT modernization and facilities modernization. Do you have a number you can share on how much money is in there today? I don't yet. It's a small start. Still working with our CFO team to understand exactly what this is going to look like for us over time. Our goal is to fund the initial round of projects by the end of the year. So uh, certainly would expect to be talking more about what those would look like probably in the fall timeframe. Are you hopeful that this will be something like the TMF for DHS going forward? Because I think there's been some consternation in Congress about DHS specifically dipping into the TMF. Well, I, I wouldn't call it consternation. I think we have learned through our ongoing partnership with, with our uh, our colleagues on the Hill that we need to clearly justify and document for our appropriators how we are using the TMF versus how we are using their appropriated funds. And when we've struggled to do that, they have justifiably asked us questions. And so we're going to continue to aggressively use the TMF. We're still using it for our Southwest border technology modernization effort, uh, along with modernizing the Homeland Security Information Network. And I am looking forward to continuing to do so. Uh, I think the NEF will give us an additional avenue as well. And I think we will find over time what's a good fit for that, what's a good fit for the TMF. In every case, though, our goal is clarity and, and complete transparency with the Hill and with our other oversight partners on how we are using different sources of funds and why each of them are necessary to add up to delivering on modernization projects. Great. Well, you know, Anything else to add at the end here? I know you're working the IT modernization strategy. Any closing thoughts? Yeah, we'll be putting out the updated DHS IT strategic plan probably around September before the end of the fiscal year when our current plan expires. And uh, I don't think it will have many surprises if you're you're listening to what I and my colleagues are saying about our priorities to strengthen customer experience, to continue to lead the rest of the federal government by example in our own cybersecurity practices to responsibly leverage artificial intelligence and emerging technologies to advance our missions, better leverage data as a strategic asset. I don't think you'll see many surprises there, but it will codify a lot of that shift that we have made over the last couple of years to make sure that that's laying the foundation for our IT strategy going forward. Homeland Security Chief Information Officer Eric Heisen speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. There's much more to the interview. Find it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a progress report from a sitting congressman who also went back to college. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.